I'm Andrea Lopez Villafania. I'm Andrew Keats. I'm Scott Lewis. We host the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Every Friday, we break down the news, news we, we think, think you should know in San Diego. Things like housing, homelessness, education, elections, political drama, the big stories that dominate the news, and the ones that slip under the radar. We also interview local lawmakers, policy experts, and other investigative journalists. The Voice of San Diego podcast, every Friday. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 10 on the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. We're already halfway through another season, which is pretty freaking wild. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the show where I bring you the stories of coffee professionals, entrepreneurship, and coffee education. Ryan Sullivan, director of coffee at the award-winning Moster Coffee Company, returns to talk about barrel-aging coffee and what the future holds for coffee in general. There's a kind of creativity, magic, and artistry to creating a final barrel-aged coffee product that actually works. There's also a lot of risk. Age it too long or too short or choose the wrong barrel, and you've lost a bunch of good green coffee and wasted a lot of person power. Ryan's going to talk us through that process. And if you're in the San Diego area, go check out Moster Coffee for yourself. They have three cafe locations now, including Bankers Hill, which is right in the city, so you're never really that far away, even if you're just visiting. I just wrote about the 4S Ranch Bot for the Bean Journal, which paid subscribers can read on roastwestcoast.com, and you can find addresses and directions and all of that on mostercoffee.com. While you're plotting your trip to one of the cafes this morning, multitask. Brew yourself a coffee, or at least order one from the nearest craft coffee roaster or coffee shop, and enjoy that fine beverage while listening to this Roast West Coast Coffee Smarter episode featuring coffee expert Ryan Sullivan of Moster Coffee Company. Mr. Sullivan, welcome back to Roast West Coast, the coffee podcast. I appreciate you coming back. Uh, we've got another Coffee Smarter episode to get into. Welcome back. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good to be back. <laughs> uh, I've done this before. I want to get into something that you guys do at Mostra that not a lot of people do, but because you guys also have a a food and beer program through Mostra and at the cafes and it, that we talked about with Mike actually a while back. You guys do barrel-aged coffees. I'm wondering a little bit about, one, how did that get started? What was, why do it? And then how does barrel aging with a coffee bean work? You know, I, I'm thinking about a barrel-aged beer where essentially they produce a beer, dump it in a barrel and leave it sit for however long they decide to leave it sit. It kind of feels like a little bit like magic. So I'm wondering how that works with coffee and what, what is actually happening to the coffee while it's in the barrel. Is that a big enough question for you? Yeah, I think there's a few few <laughs> layers to that. So we, like you said, we do we do a lot of beer. Uh, Mike definitely heads up the beer program, and, and Mike is a is a huge beer nerd, and and was a big part of the you know secondary market. You know, much like there is for you know shoes, 
there's a secondary market for beer, there's a secondary market for bourbon and all kinds of other things. Um, but as a, as a beer lover, Mike just really dove head in on doing coffee beers. Um, I think that's definitely like a bigger part of our wholesale program is, is to- geared towards our beer relationships. So with that, yeah, you said tons of breweries do barrel-aged uh, stouts and, and other types of coffees, uh, sorry, other types of beers. We kind of took that approach and decided that, you know, why not try it with coffee? Mike is, per his background, is a, is a fine dining chef. So he thinks about flavors, um, I think, a little bit differently than, than some people do. Um, we've talked about, you know, I think just in the coffee world in general, like when you ship green coffee to, to wherever you're going, you know, or even storing it in your warehouse, you get to be really careful with, with what's around the coffee because uh, it can absorb a lot of smells and aromas. So if you have a freshly painted shipping container and you put green coffee into that shipping container, it's going to have a lot of this paint smell. If you ship coffee with oranges in the same container, it's going to smell like oranges. So in that sense, Mike, Mike liked to talk about, and, and we joke about this all the time, but you know, he says that green coffees are like eggshells. So they're very porous and they absorb flavors and you can do a lot of things with eggs, just like you could do a lot of things with coffee. So we kind of took that concept and decided to put some coffee in barrels. You know, at first, I think it's it's just, let's just see what happens. Before you go further, uh, are you putting green coffee in the barrel? That's what I'm assuming based on what you just said, or roasted coffee? Yeah, so we put, we put green coffee in the barrel primarily. We do a little bit of cold brew barrel-aged coffee as well, but we have not so far done uh, roasted coffee in barrels. So we put the green coffee in, and like I said, it's, it's kind of a, a wait-and-see game. You know, we'll check moisture content you know, throughout the aging process. And then we take small samples and we roast them to kind of see what's happening. I think a big, a big part of what we do is we try to take what we do seriously, but, but we also have a general philosophy, which doesn't taste good. So barrel aging coffee, it was like, okay, we may not know exactly what's happening here, but does the end result taste good? And if it does great, let's, let's keep going with this idea. So uh, we now have a pretty extensive barrel age program i say with a lot of the, the breweries that we work with and, and the beers that they do, a lot of them on the secondary market are definitely um, hyped beers and carry a lot of weight in the beer community. So we'll take those barrels, aged coffee in them, and it's kind of a repurposing of this product where we can say, okay, hey, you love this barrel-aged stout that this brewery did. Now try this coffee that we aged in the same barrel of the same beer from the same brewery whose stout you just loved and, and you know, wanted to, to buy, but, you know, it was hard to find or something. So in that in that case, the coffee that's going in there is actually the third product that's in that barrel behind the bourbon and then the beer. And that was a question I had was, are you taking green coffees and that will have a flavor? I'm assuming that you've kind of, you purchased that coffee because of certain flavors you're expecting to get and trying to match them to the flavors from the beer or the bourbon that was in that barrel before. Correct, yeah. So not not just bourbon. I mean, bourbon is, I'd say, generally speaking, what most people would think of, but it could be any type of barrel, brandy, scotch, mead, anything, wine, barrels, um, anything that's you know been in a barrel before. It's a spent barrel, meaning it's been used and has some flavor imparted from the previous product. And then, you know, secondary uh, tertiary products going after and, and kind of take on some of those flavors, um, hopefully in a complementing uh, way, right? Not, not always, but, but hopefully. 
when I taste, if I were to taste like a whiskey sample off of a barrel, it comes out pretty hot. Do you notice like major flavor changes during the aging process? Are you tasting like, say, I don't know how long, uh, that's actually how long you age things generally, but like if you were to taste it a week in, six months in, do you notice major differences that way, the way you do with whiskey? Yeah, I think there's definitely some some mellowing. And I think we compare it a lot to, if you think about spaghetti sauce, like day one, spaghetti sauce tastes great. But day two, it's actually a little bit better, right? All those flavors have kind of had a chance to harmonize and become you know homogenous with each other. So I think there's that, think about a graph right this very quick peak and then a kind of a slow tapering to it of of the flavor right it's going to quickly get imparted into the coffee but it won't quite mellow and stabilize until you give it a little bit longer with a dry product though like green coffee you are fighting a little bit against the barrel because the reason that barrels work is they have liquid which is swelling the wood and keeping it tight so once you take the liquid out the barrels tend to fall apart fairly quickly. And then you have a lot of extra uh, oxygen and things like that. So we gotta be kind of careful with, with that. So once the barrel starts to kind of lose its integrity, it's, it's not even up to us necessarily. It's more of the barrel has told us like it's time to take this, take this coffee out of here. What would be like an average, not, I mean, and I know that this is a, a very general question for anyone listening, but like, for a barrel aged coffee that I might buy, like, has it been aged? I mean, what is the timeline? I, I mean, like when I think about like whiskey, it's like five years, 10 years, 15 years. I'm assuming that's not the case with coffee. No, not the case. Yeah. So seasons have a big play, right? And much like the reason that bourbon is able to age so quickly in Kentucky is because the summers are really hot and the winters are super cold. So that's all this, this push and pull out of the wood. So same thing, like in the summer, coffees are going to age a lot more quickly. So we might be able to get a coffee barrel aged to a point that we feel is is really nice in you know maybe uh, six to eight weeks, and then in the winter it might be three to four months. Sure. And that's a general and, timeline, but yeah. Right, and that would be longer if your winter were say in Wisconsin or Minnesota than yeah, it would be here. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and that seasonal impact uh, is so crazy. I actually just was doing some whiskey sampling at a distillery here in San Diego, Pacific Coast Spirits. If anyone comes down, they should check that out. And the whiskeys that were in barrels that were in a window, like the, even though they were barreled at the same time, mm-hmm. were totally different than the ones that were, you know, in the shadow. And, and that yeah. was done somewhat intentionally. I mean, yeah. both for marketing, because when you walk by, you see the barrels in the window and it's awesome. But uh, also just to see what the differences would be. And that was pretty cool. Yeah. For fellow bourbon aficionados, let's say like, like myself, I'm a self-proclaimed aficionado. I just really like bourbon, but yeah, uh, Rick houses and, and what the Rick house is made of, whether it's steel or it's brick or wood, what level they're on, you know, like, uh, for four roses, for example, like a tier six, uh, barrel from four roses that's aged for, let's say 10 years carries like is like immediately a sought after product from a four roses barrel age release compared to like a tier one or a tier two um for whatever reason it just seems like that tier six creates some magical we call them honey barrels the best product comes typically comes from you know that's this region yeah that's crazy Uh, can i guess that tier six would be higher than a lower tier yeah 
I mean, so right. naturally different heat, heat rises and humidity is, is different and it's yeah. going to cause all those different changes. Yep. Whether it's at the center of the Rick house or towards the exterior of the Rick house, totally to change the flavors as well. Yeah. It's all, it's all really crazy stuff. Which is why distilleries and I'm assuming uh, even with coffee storage product gets rotated to some yep. extent depending yep. to keep it from having only one sort of uh, change to try to blend together those changes. Yeah. If you were to give me a bourbon recommendation, <laughs> if you could only give me one, what what's it going to be? I have a, I'd say a, a definitely a unpopular opinion, but uh, for the <laughs> for my fellow wild turkey lovers, I think wild turkey is probably my favorite distillery. If I had to pick one one distillery to drink for the rest of my life, it would be wild turkey. If you can find it, great bottle. It's, it's actually just wild turkey one hundred and one, so standard wild turkey one hundred and one. But if you can find a pre like 2010 or older would be even better. It, it'll say Austin Nichols on the label and the Turkey is actually in color as opposed to being in uh, like a black and white or, or now the new bottles just have it all engraved in the glass. For some reason it's, a, it's like, we call it like dusty, dusty Turkey. And it's just got this really kind of funky profile to it. That's like very distinct wild Turkey. Interesting. I'll look for that for sure. Well, if we ever meet up in person, I'll, I'll, I'll have, I'll pour you some. Oh, well, that's a motivator for sure. So this is going to lead me into, you know, kind of the future of coffee. Obviously, I don't think there was a lot of coffee roasters, barrel aging coffee 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I can't say that I've done a lot of history on it, but just a guess since bourbon barrel beers became kind of really popular about 10 years ago. What what do you see as kind of the future of coffee and what sort of innovations are you guys doing at Mostra Coffee that you think could become something that is is looked at either either as a one-off or as something you think you know this could be the next thing big question always i've got nothing to lose on this side yeah i think <laughs> my personal opinion coffee is really affected the agricultural products it's really affected by what's happening you know on planet earth and so global warming is, is having a really big uh, impact on on coffee growers so I really think innovation wise, there's going to have to be a lot of, of work done on varietals that are disease resistant and a lot of changes in when coffees actually ripen and when they ship to us. And there's going to be a whole shift there. And then due to some of those changes, we, we might end up with slightly, potentially we end up with, with great varietals of coffee that, that tastes really great, you know, fantastic cupping coffees and and we may end up with varietals that you know need to be a little bit hardier to to withstand some of these changes in the environment so i think uh, and we've already started to see this but fermentation experiments i think are are definitely where the future of improvements in coffee are going to be uh, from a green perspective it's really understanding what is happening once the coffee is picked off the tree and from that point all the way until it's essentially bagged and is just being stored, you know, what changes are, are occurring and, and how do we manipulate those, those changes and, and do things that are more favorable to the, the outcome. So I think that's definitely a big thing. And so, you know, we specifically for most, I mean, we, we work with, I think the most um, in the Philippines, uh, we're definitely one of a very small amount of roasters that work in the Philippines, but um, working on, on those experimental process coffees to, to really improve the cup quality. And ultimately, you know, I think once, once coffees have a higher cup quality, then they can be put on the same level 
has, you know, your Panama geishas and, you know, like I love personally, you know, Kenyan double wash coffees and uh, Ethiopian wash varietal, you know, heirloom or, or we call them uh, land race varietals now. So we need Philippine coffee, like specifically for us to, to really elevate and score higher so that we can be like, look, like Philippine coffee is just as good as coffee from Kenya and Ethiopia and Panama. Um, but that's going to take some time. Were you, I know uh, the team from Mostra did a trip to the Philippines a few years ago. Were you able to be part of that trip? Yeah. And yeah. And what was that experience like? I mean, how did that change what you believe about the coffee you're working with? I mean, life-changing to an extent. I think you just, it was my first time visiting a, a coffee farm and just travel so far and you just, you know, walk down this road on this mountain and then all of a sudden you're just like looking out over this like beautiful landscape and then there's just a handful of families living here and they just have all this land and they're growing, you know, all kinds of things, um, including coffee. And you're like, wow, like that's where my coffee comes from. Like, that's awesome. During that trip, we, we were talking with, with the, with the farmers and, and the producers of, of the coffee and talking about, you know, I mean, really the only way to, to make impactful change is, is volume. So I think one of my big caveats with like direct trade can be, that it's it's a little bit of a photo op opportunity and and you know we're buying micro lots or nano lots of coffee but we're not buying 80 or 90 percent of what that farmer is producing and then they're maybe left to sell that to a, a local commodity market or uh you know who knows they could be taking a loss on that coffee and then they're taking out a loan to cover the loss and you know get through the next year the next year the next year so on and so forth so volume and really being able to buy everything that a farm produces so when we were talking about that, it was kind of like, to me, I was like, well, I was like, what do we use every single day that we could put Philippine coffee in that would really make an impact on that kind of scale? We came up with uh, Ghost Bear Espresso, which is our daily served espresso. And uh, we put Philippine coffee in there. And so it's in every single drink that we serve in the cafes. And some people will be like, okay, cool, big whoop. But uh, it's Philippine coffee is incredibly incredibly expensive um i think our our average price uh, after shipping and financing um everything comes to about nine dollars a pound green wow that is really high for anyone listening even craft coffee companies that i'm aware of it's generally between like four and five maybe six dollars so nine is definitely up there yeah for a great a great coffee can be five six dollars a pound absolutely yeah. So $9 is totally absurd. And we're probably a little bit, if not a lot crazy for putting that in our espresso blend. But through that, we were able to just drastically you know, increase the, the volume of coffee that we were buying. So we went from six bags our first year of buying coffee from, from this farm to um, 130 bags last year of, again, this crazy 5X price coffee where you pay for Brazil or or something of, of it's a more similar quality coffee. Is the price, the higher price based on the product itself, or is it based more on the fact that it's more of a logistical challenge because it's not a traditional place that people are importing coffee from? Logistical challenges, volume challenges. I think last year was the first time they were able to fill half a container. So you're paying full, full container costs to ship it half full from the Philippines and Southeast Asia all the way to the U S 
it's not economical to do so. <laughs> um, and th those are some of the challenges, right? And then it's, you know, uh, again, we had financing charges and trucking charges and all of these things on top. And um, it just ultimately brings the price to a pretty astronomical level for, again, a, a coffee that cups the way that I'd say most of the Philippine coffee we, we buy cups. Is, it's, a, it's a lower scoring, I'd say 84 points, which is, you know, 100% specialty grade. It's, it's great, solid coffee, but it's not typical for what a coffee that price would cut. It's really interesting to hear that. I, I, I mean, obviously we learned a lot of, we talk a lot about the coffee belt in the show and just about the challenges that face shipping and logistics, but that, that definitely surprised me. And that's probably why we have the ghost bear NFT coming out. I'm yeah. just going to throw that out and not say anything else about it for now. I couldn't tell you much about it anyways. I don't know. I don't know that much. <laughs> I, I, I have to look up what an NFT is exactly before I talk any further about it. You've been in this industry for quite some time now. We learned on the last show, you got your start at Starbucks, which is like a feeder program for future coffee professionals. Worked in Santa Barbara and then at Bird Rock and now with Mostra. What is kind of something you've learned along the way that has kind of been challenging or that you've learned like through experience to get to where you are now? And I would also, I'd caveat that question just a little bit by saying that moment you mentioned on our last show where you had that $9 cup of coffee from Bird Rock and immediately kind of had this moment of like, this is what I want to work, want to work in this industry. Has there ever been gaps in that passion where you thought, man, you know what, maybe I should go get that office job that mom and dad wanted me to get? Definitely to that, that last point you just mentioned. I think uh, dollars speak loudly, right? Put your money where your mouth is. As a barista and, and as a, a longtime barista, I think, you know, you can get by for a minute with some of those lower wages that baristas typically get paid. And then you get a little bit older and that starts to hurt a little more and then a little bit more and a little bit more. And it just becomes this slightly, you know, can be slightly degrading to that, that passion where you're like, man, like I've, I put in so much time and, you know, I feel like I'm really qualified to, to do this or that, but then the money isn't there to back it up. Right. And I'm definitely far from, I would say a greedy person that I don't need a lot. But, you know, making, well, I guess at the time, probably $12 an hour or something is, is pretty hard. And then you add on, you know, commute and, you know, just San Diego living expenses. Um, it can definitely make you make you ponder and question whether you made the right choice. So I definitely had those moments. What kept you going then? Just, I just really like... It's kind of like, I think I said in the last episode, like I, I have to win cup tasters. It was almost like I have to make this work for myself. So it was like, like, what am I going to do? Like, what's like, what, like, okay, what have I not done? You know, what more can I do? And just really just, just nose to the grindstone. I worked really hard for a long time and um, it's not the work that you get paid for. It's the work you do on your own uh, outside of, outside of that. Right. So it's, it's the networking, it's, it's the learning you know, what book can I read that I haven't read before that's going to teach me something new? You know, what uh, online uh, YouTube video or forum or something can I read? What other person can I talk to? What other skills can I learn that you know, I'm not getting paid to do in my current job, but that I know I can take forward in, in my next job, you know, whenever that comes. So 
like I said, probably four years of me trying to get a job at Moster and every day trying to learn something different about coffee. And I think that just, again, for me, luckily worked out that when I did get started Moster and, and they were, um, I would say, generous to offer this random person that kept coming in for years a job that, you know, I was able to just to just take it and, and, roll, and run with it. Um, and most just let me do that. The coffee program pretty much is in the direction that I that I want to take it. That, you know, they're supportive of most, if not all, of the decisions that, that I, I would like to do. So I get to buy the coffees that I want and, you know, roast coffees the way we, we want to roast coffees. And, and they're happy to, to let us, you know, take that and run with it. So that's been really lucky for me. Um, what was the other, the first part of that question? The other part of that was just, um, if there was anything that you've kind of learned along the way that stuck out as that was challenging, um, beyond that. And I would also say, and this isn't another question, it's still the same question, but as you kind of modestly say that they, you know, took a chance on you, you also had some pedigree. You worked with a, a company that had quite a bit of acclaim with Bird Rock and, and up in Santa Barbara and, and you are on the show as a coffee smarter expert. So I need people to believe that you are an expert. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I uh, don't like to talk that highly of myself, I, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I like to, to just do the work that, that we do. And, and I hope that that can speak, speak for itself. And that way I don't have to talk about it myself. Um, <laughs> I'll talk about it for you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll stick about, I'll stick with, you know, just if there's anything that you've learned kind of about coffee or about the industry that has stuck out with you uh, over the years. Yeah. I think, I think one, the thing that I learned that was definitely a struggle. And, and one of the things that I, uh, at least I strive really hard to make a big part of most this program is that I feel like coffee has this or can have this closed door aspect and you know, there might be a lot of baristas that want to know more and learn more, but then they face this obstacle, this wall that's preventing them from moving to the next step because, you know, either they're the company that they're with doesn't, you know, uh, they, they, they'll tell you, Hey, that's not your job. Don't worry about it. You know, I don't have time to teach this to you. Oh, you know, we might be cupping coffee right behind you, but, uh, you can't, you can't come over here and cup coffee because that's the, we're doing that. You need to focus on being a barista and, you know, serving customers. So that was definitely a really big struggle for me. Um, and I, I definitely didn't have that experience everywhere. And it definitely wasn't my experience the whole time in coffee, but it was, you know, definitely a experience or, or a few experiences that I had. So at Mostra day one, I, I tried really hard. Um, and, and when we only had a, a one cafe in Carmel Mountain Ranch, um, I actually cupped all of the coffee that we roasted in the cafe. We built this little cupping bar in the back and I would go relieve the baristas that were working so that they could go and cup coffees and just kind of peek behind the curtain, so to speak. And, you know, kind of get a sense for what we're doing, you know, Hey, this coffee tastes like this. Like, tell me about that. Like, like what, like, you know, why does it taste fruity? Or like, okay, you did, you said you didn't like this coffee. Like, what do you not like about it? And we're trying to really dive deeper into, into some of those things. So generally speaking at, at most, I don't get to cup with, with the staff all the time, but we do make a, a really big effort to cup and taste coffee with the staff as much as possible. And then I, I do have a, a just standing, standing open door policy. So if anybody ever wants to come to the warehouse, you know, we cup coffee here all the time. We have an espresso machine. 
you know, people can come and do things on their own. And, you know, if, if someone tells me, Hey, I'm coming up, uh, can I cup? It's like, cool. Yeah. We'll set up something. You know, what do you want to try? Here's some new things that you probably haven't had because we haven't released them yet. You know, things like that to just hopefully shine a little bit of that light that, that often, you know, things get left in the dark and, and people don't get to see. There is a, a, an entire world of coffee outside of the cafe that until you know that that exists, you don't know that that exists. I talk to a family member about coffee. It's like, oh, what do you, are you a barista or, or do you roast? It's like, no, I, you know, I buy coffee. And it's like, that's just right over their head, right? They don't know what that means. They don't know that there's, you know, just so many different people, traders and importers and exporters and farmers that, that you know, have such huge impacts and roles along the way. Um, so trying to, trying to shine a little bit of light, like I said, on, on some of those lesser seen aspects. Very cool. I, I think what I just heard is that I can just show up at the warehouse one day and try coffees with you. hundred <laughs> percent. That's a standing invitation for anyone visiting San Diego. Perfect. Uh, good to know. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for sharing just some more information with us and, and your time. I'm always grateful for that and what you guys have been doing at Mostro to help uh, draw attention to San Diego and also uplift craft coffee has been great. So thanks for being part of that. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. To recap, coffee, especially green coffee, can absorb the flavors and smells around it. Roasters and coffee drinkers need to be careful about how their coffee is shipped and stored. If you're expecting chocolate cherry notes, but you get the overwhelming flavor of paint fumes, that isn't good. But it is why barrel aging coffee works. The green coffee gets stored in a barrel previously used for another beverage product. That green coffee will pull out the leftover flavors of the bourbon, the beer, the wine, along with aromas and flavors from the barrel itself. How long it takes will depend on the season's temperature and humidity, the quality of the barrel, the location it is stored, and so much more. Generally speaking, at least here in Southern California, the aging process will take six to eight weeks during the warmer seasons and upwards of three to four months during the colder ones. On that note, Ryan used the term rickhouse, which is interchangeable with rackhouse. A rickhouse is a building constructed with tiered shelving to better store wooden barrels during the aging process. Prior to the tiered shelving system, bourbon companies would stack their barrels on top of each other, and the pressure from the weight of the barrels at the top would strain the barrels on the bottom, causing leakage or even collapse. Ryan Sullivan really likes bourbon. And I really like bourbon. So I think it is safe to say that 100% of the Ryans on this show like bourbon. And I really do recommend Pacific Coast Spirits as a Southern California distillery that really excels at producing bourbon and whiskey. Check them out if you're looking for an indie distiller to support. Looking toward the future, Ryan believes that there will be innovation in disease-resistant coffees and even a changing of the growing cycle in part due to climate change that will end up leading to coffee fermentation experimentation. I'll close up this recap by saying Ryan's door is open. Ryan Sullivan, that is. The door to this closet podcast studio is closed. Frankly, I'm not sure two of us would even fit in here. But Ryan at Moster's door is open if any members of his team, or even if you want to learn more. You can reach out to him with questions at Moster Coffee on Instagram or MosterCoffee.com online. And if you have questions you'd like answered on a future Coffee Smarter episode of this podcast, send those to me through Instagram. The show handle is at Roast West Coast. I'll be back next week with this show's official 100th episode. 
and an interview with David Foster of Kiln Coffee Roasters in Grand Junction, Colorado. I travel through Grand Junction a few times a year, and my wife and I go out of our way to stop at Kiln. As always, you can stream this coffee podcast on any major podcast platform. But you'd really help this show impress the sponsors by subscribing to the newsletter at roastwestcoast.com. You can subscribe for free, and then you'll never miss an episode of the podcast. And realistically, why would you want to risk it? There's also a paid subscription, and the champions that have chosen that option not only provide me with a little bit of an emotional boost, but they are literally the reason I can produce this show. Thank you to everyone who subscribes. In addition to the podcast and the newsletter, paid subscribers can also check out the new column, The Bean Journal, which details what and where I'm drinking coffee, my coffee experiments, and will feature my summer travel coffee diary. Thank you for listening to the show today and to my industry partners. My legacy partners have been with me for 99 shows so far, and I'm really grateful to say that they're sticking it out to 100. They include Moster Coffee Company, Steady State Coffee Roasting, Coffee Cycle Roasting, Camp Coffee Company, First Light Whiskey, Zumbar Coffee and Tea, Marea Coffee, Cape Horn Coffee Importers, and Cafe La Terre. Newcomers, Ignite Coffee Company, and Ascend Coffee Roasters round out this show's partners, and I couldn't do this without their support. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this show has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity and coffee to make it through the day. And please, always tip your baristas, and be sure to drink good coffee. Hey everyone, if you like the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, you might also appreciate the I Like Beer the Podcast. Listening to these guys is like being a fly on the wall of the pub with a few of your favorite mates having a pint. These professional beer appreciators have plenty of stories to share on everything from the mating habits of penguins to their behind-the-scenes brewery experiences. Check out the I Like Beer the Podcast wherever you are listening to this show about coffee or head to ilikebeerthepodcast.com.